This is Amy Cohen Epstein, founder and executive director of the 20 plus year old nonprofit organization, the Lynn Cohen Foundation and the SEAM, the series for education and awareness in medicine. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing female founders, entrepreneurs, scientists, doctors, researchers to talk about women's health, wellness, and preventive care. Take a listen. I am overjoyed and super excited to be interviewing Jen Fisher here today. Um, this is going to be a really good interview, and I just hope I don't talk at all. And Jen does all the talking. Um, a quick, quick inter, you know, introduction. After suffering from anxiety, losing sleep, and being perpetually stressed out, Jen made the case to her higher ups how a chief well-being officer at Deloitte could benefit the company and they gave you the job. Not only did you get your anxiety un under control, but you beat breast cancer and are now the chief well-being officer at Deloitte. So, okay, there's so much to dig into <laughs> and I have to sort of break it into two parts. The first thing I'm gonna say is, was health, wellness something you had sort of always had in your life or always thought about in your life or did it just sort of come up you know, thinking about that in a proactive, preventive way when you were dealing with these really intense, you know, anxiety and losing sleep and everything else? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I would say um, I believed <laughs> that it was always a focus for me. And what I right. mean by that is um, I've, I've always been very focused on um, my, my physical fitness. Um, and so I was an athlete growing up, played soccer, um, all the way through college at university of Miami. And so I was very focused on kind of the, the physical aspects of what was required to, to be an athlete. Um, I never really thought about, or even talked to anybody about, um, you know, the, the, the mental health aspects, um, of what, what was needed or what was required. Um, and so I think um, I focused on it, but it, what I learned um, in, you know, my story of burnout and other things was that I, it was much too narrowly defined. And so, um, you know, the kind of the evolution and the expansion of, you know, it's more than just our physical health. And as, as a matter of fact, you can't really separate <laughs> physical and emotional and mental health, right? I mean, we are all, we are one person. And as far as I know, we don't, you know, it doesn't stop at our neck, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, while I thought I was focused on it, what I've learned in my own journey is that I was much too narrowly focused on one aspect of it. So I played really competitive soccer too, which is interesting. Um, <laughs> not in college. By the time I got to college, I was actually burned out. And mm. I looked around and um, I went to Duke, which was, you know, like Miami, a division one, crazy, amazing soccer team. And I was like, I don't think I can do this anymore. I want this to be my whole life. I need to see what else I can participate in. Um, but I understand exactly where you're coming from, from that note of, my physical well, physical well-being was what was ingrained in us. Yeah. I think especially as girls and then young women playing competitive sports, um, you know, you have to stay fit. You have to stay ready in shape, even during a short off season. You know, all those things were sort of just part of what became the norm, I have to assume for you too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the interesting thing, and maybe it's just because I, I tuned it out, what I do see much more in athletics that I don't feel like I got was the 
the rest component. You know, I felt like we were always, you know, we were always focused on training for our sport and not the kind of the value of rest that I'm glad we're seeing so much more in athletics these days. So, but just, you know, Yeah. And just um, to, to your point, um, you know, when, when I played soccer at university of Miami, it was not yet division one. Oh, actually. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Um, actually they did not have a women's soccer team when I started at the university of Miami and I joined a club team and we oh, wow. um, shortly after that kind of found out that the, the university was in title nine violation for <laughs> not having enough women's sports. <laughs> so we petitioned to make women's soccer a, a varsity, a varsity sport. And so I'm not sure that I'm uh, as great a soccer player as you were, but I oh, was no. good enough. I was good enough to get on the university of Miami team at that time. I don't know that I could do it today or even 20 years ago. <laughs> Oh no. And I, I would have had to work my butt off to walk on on the Duke team. Don't, don't, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm no Julie Foudy. Yeah. Let me assure you. Um, but you know, it was interesting. My sister also played club uh, soccer in college and excuse me, she played for the varsity team and then also like club side teams and blew out her knee. Mm. And I think it was that idea that she was so physically ready always. And then when she got to college, she sort of saw other things and was not dealing with anything else in terms of her mental well-being and strength and just wellness overall. And it showed when you, you know, injury shows often when you physically tax yourself, but also when you completely ignore that, like you said, your neck up and even yeah. your midsection, I think it's your heart. Your stomach, <laughs> your heart absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I focus on so much is that incredible balance that we have to do that I think is innately in some ways difficult for women and also just taught to us, you know, it's sort of taught in a way where we sort of focus on one or the other, but that intersection of no, our mental health and our physical health, it's all health and wellness, right? You just can't have one without the (laughs) other. Um, And how it plays out in the workplace, I think is also fascinating. So tell me like that whole story and and how, and I've never, I mean, there's not that many chief well-being officers. There's more now than there used to be, but it's sort of there's just still not enough. There's still not enough of us. I'm yeah. I'm on a mission to make sure every organization has one. But yeah, I mean, so I've been with Deloitte for 20 years, um, and I have been in my role for the as chief well-being officer for the last seven years. And so, if you rewind about seven and a half, eight years ago, where I was was actually in a complete state of burnout. Um, and this was at a time when burnout wasn't something that was being discussed in society or in certainly not in the workplace. Um, and so I actually um, didn't really know what I was going through. Um, I knew that there was something wrong. But, um, you know, much like your comments, I kind of looked around to other people in the organization and was like, huh, well, I must be doing something wrong, or I must be a failure, or I must not be able to cut it here, because if I look at my other colleagues, they seem to be just fine. So I convinced myself, like we do, um, that I would you know, rest on the weekend or take a vacation when this project was done or, 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 and just kind of kept kicking that proverbial can down the road, if you will. Um, But that proverbial can down the road was my health and well-being. And so I got to a point where, you know, my brain and my body were like, okay, we've given you plenty of chances (laughs) to do something about this. And if you're not going to do something about it, we'll do it for you. And so there was literally a day where 
you know, I, I woke up and my eyes opened and I was alive, but I really could not get out of bed and continue to engage anymore in, you know, not just my work life, but like everything about my life, I was so completely burnt out. And so I was forced to take a leave of absence. Um, I started going to a, to a therapist. I was you know, diagnosed with anxiety and depression at the time. And so I had to really um, you know, figure out how I was going to deal with that and, and treat that and what my treatment plan was. And then just physically, um, you know, my, my body was exhausted um, and kind of everything that, that comes along with that. So I had to, you know, take a step back and, and really get well, both mentally and physically. And in doing that, um, you know, learning to set boundaries, learning to, or deciding, you know, the role that work would play in my life, um, you know, as, you know, in addition to kind of other things that were important to me. And I became very passionate about wanting to make sure that others um, didn't get to where I got, or if they felt like they were getting to where I got, um, that they would speak up and ask for help um, because I was, I, I didn't know who to ask for help. You know, I, people ask me like, what would you do, do differently? You know, I would ask for help. And it's interesting because when I came back and I, I started to talk about it, so many people were like, you know, wow, me too. I felt that way. I've experienced that. And as I, you know, especially now, since, you know, unfortunately, I think burnout is so much more prevalent. It's certainly something that is much more acceptable to talk about, which is great. Um, but I think we're talking about it more because so many more people are experiencing it. <laughs> yeah. um, and so how do we move from, you know, how do we get to preventative to taking actions to make sure that people don't get to burnout before they raise their hand and say, hey, I need some help and I can't do all of this and, and feel okay with that. And so, um, you know, after my leave of absence, I came back to work. Um, I thanked my leader, but I was actually going to resign from Deloitte because I I felt so strongly that this is something that I wanted to do to help others. And there wasn't a role like a chief well-being officer at Deloitte or any other organization <laughs> for that matter at that time. So it was more kind of like executive coaching or something like that, that, you know, I thought I was going to go into. And my leader, who is still a dear friend and mentor today, was really the one who kind of had more of a vision than I do and she than I did. And she was like, you're not going anywhere because if you need this, then there's a lot of other people that need it. And so that kind of sent me on the path of putting together a business case about what well-being at Deloitte, you know, could and, and should look like. Um, and, you know, because of the roles that I'd had previously in the organization and the relationships that I was able to develop, um, I was able to put together that business case and, you know, sit down with some of our most senior leaders and just ask them to give me a chance. And, you know, see if it would work. And if it, if it wouldn't work, if it wouldn't work, I kind of went as far as saying, I'll, I'll leave the organization. Um, so kind of no risk to you, but like, let's give it a try. Um, and that was seven years ago. And um, the journey, I mean, it, it will always be a journey, I think, for every as it is for every individual, it is true for every organization. It's not a check the box, like we have a wellness program, let's move on. Um, because yeah. people are always evolving and the workplace is always evolving as we certainly have seen over the past two years. Yeah. Um, and so it's been an incredible journey to, to be, you know, to be a part of. And, um, you know, you mentioned me being a breast cancer survivor. 
So about nine months after taking on the, the role of chief well-being officer, I was very unexpectedly diagnosed with breast cancer. Kind of my own knowledge about breast cancer to up to that point was that it was, you know, largely something that, you know, happened when you were older. It was also something that, you know, in large part was hereditary and ran in family lines when there's actually a really, you know, while it's true, it's a very small percentage of, <laughs> of women actually have it in, in their families. Um, and so um, I had just turned 40. I went for my annual mammogram. And, you know, when I was at the Women's Diagnostic Center, they were like, okay, we see something we don't like, you know, we're going to do, a, you know, an ultrasound, like right then and there. Um, and yeah, and then so the very next day, you know, I got the phone call that I had breast cancer. And so I was stage three, um, and I went through about eight months of, you know, surgeries, chemotherapy, radiation, everything. And this was really, you know, like I said, nine months um, after I'd take, I just kind of felt like I just hit my stride <laughs> in my role. And, you know, I remember talking to our, our head of HR, chief talent officer at the time, when right after I got diagnosed, I had to call him up and tell him. And um, I said to him, I said, listen, you know, if you don't want me to be your chief well-being officer anymore, I completely understand. And oh, quite the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, and this is this kind of goes to like the stories we tell ourselves in our head. Right. And so there was like this big silent pause. And he, he retired a few years ago. And I actually wrote him this long letter because it wasn't really a story. I don't think that I'd ever really like told him this, but I told so many other people. So there was like this long pause and he was like, you know, Jen, <laughs> you're one of the smartest people I know, but that's got to be one of the dumbest things you've ever said. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And I was kind of was like, well, why? It doesn't make any sense if, you know, like, why would you have a chief well-being officer who has cancer? Like that's, that doesn't make any sense. And he was like, actually, it makes a ton of sense to me. He's yeah. like, because you have this and you're going to figure out a path forward and a way to overcome it. And it's going to make you better at what you do, because it's one thing to stand in front of a group of people and tell them to take care of themselves when you've never actually, well, I had struggled with my, you know, with my burnout, my mental health, but like this kind of, he's like, this is just part of your story, right? Like it just, you're going to help people even more, right? You have kind of the, bur the burnout, the depression, the anxiety, now you're going to have this and overcome it. It's going to become part of your story in another way that you can help people. And it was that it was kind of in that moment that um, I changed my mindset from like, wow, I have cancer and I'm going to die because that's where you go. Like anybody that <laughs> that's ever been diagnosed with cancer, like you hear those words and it doesn't matter like, you know, like what the diagnosis is. It's just like hearing that you have cancer, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. Right. So that was like in that moment that I was like, wow, you know what? He's right. Like, I'm going to take this and I'm going to use it as part of my platform in particular to help other women. And, and that's what I've been, that's what I've done. And um, especially in an organization like Deloitte, I mean, we have over a hundred thousand people. And so if you do the math, you know, there's an unfortunate number of women that get diagnosed with breast cancer. Oh, and yeah. so, yeah. And so I've used my platform as a way to, you know, to help those women. And I'm always, you know, my, I'm always just a phone call away from anybody that gets diagnosed or has a spouse or a friend or a partner or whatever it may be. I, it's like an open door policy for me. So it's just kind of become part of my mission to say like, Hey, if you know anyone or you need to talk to anyone, please, like I'm here. So that's kind of, I guess, my way of turning a, a negative into a positive or a couple of negatives into a positive. <laughs> Lemons into lemonade. Yeah. You know, I just recently interviewed, and she's a dear friend, um, 
this gal, Alyssa Goodman, she's a holistic nutritionist Mm. and her story is not so dissimilar, but she, um, was diagnosed with, um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and she went to see many different doctors. And one of the few doctors that she ended up connecting with, the only one to ask was, how are you? what are you doing? Like, what, how is your state of mind right Mm -hmm. now besides without the cancer diagnosis, but what is in your life right now? Are you happy? And, you know, her entire next chapter is about that complete connection between, you know, and I, I don't, you know, no one can tell us that stress, burnout, anxiety, depression causes cancer. It does. But But scientifically, there are hormones released when you're in Uh that state that aren't good for your body. And everyone's body reacts differently to that. Um, But, you know, it's just back to what we began this with, which is the that health and wellness is mental and physical health. And so it's it's not it's awful, but it's not, you know, so shocking that you had that, you know, really intense episode in your life. And then, you know, how, how long later were you diagnosed with breast cancer? It was a few years. So, and so when had you last seen your, um, when well, had you last my, had a mammogram? It was my first mammogram. Cause I had just turned 40. So, right. and that was, and, you know, I was following the guidelines, right. That, of course. that I need a mammogram before that. Cause I wasn't high risk. Right. And you were diagnosed with stage three. So stage three. I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to be, but the idea that the cancer had been around for a while yep. is is a pretty decent conclusion, yeah. um, which just hammers home the point that, especially as women, we just, you know, we we brush that to the side or we deal with it when we literally physically can't get out of bed. You're not the first person who's told me that, you know, that it's like, we go, we go, we, we need to prove ourselves, all these things. And then wait a second, you know, something else could actually happen. That's like a huge you know, a cancer diagnosis with like, which like you said to so many people, is it, they see it as a death sentence. Yeah. So I think, yeah, and you're, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I talk about that all the time. You, you won't, your, 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 your doctor or your oncologist won't tell you that it's, you know, stress or burnout or, you know, those, the kind of those lifestyle factors, but I just, you know, I'm very um, aware of my body and kind of I'm like intuitively like I you know I and, and maybe it's because I need a why <laughs> you yeah. know so because when you're diagnosed with something like cancer you also want to know like why me right and so um you know and in kind of my search for a why it was like well okay if I look at the way I was living my life for five six seven years and what that does to your immune system, you know, my, one thing my oncologist did say is that everybody has cancer, right? Like we all have cancer cells, we all have cancer cells. So it's whether or not your body does its job. And if you are constantly hammering, you know, away at your immunity through the way that you're, you know, the choices that you're making and, you know, not getting enough sleep, not, you know, getting movement, not, you know, not eating some nutritious food, all of those things, because that's what I said. I was like, wow, I exercise, I eat healthy. I, you know, like I did all of the things that, or I was currently doing all of the things that they said that you're supposed to do, right? Like I don't drink a lot of alcohol. I don't know, none of those things. I didn't have any of those risk factors. But if you rewind in my life, you know, three, four or five years prior, 
I wasn't sleeping. I was highly stressed. I, you know, I mean, the lifestyle that I was living and what it did to my immunity, I fully, without having like, you know, a doctor tell me, I fully believe that that was a, a big contributor to the reason why I got cancer. Absolutely. It would be too odd not to right. have been. And I think, you know, I don't think that that's shameful. And I don't think no. that we turn around and shame ourselves or blame ourselves. Nope. I think instead you do what you did unbelievably, you know, and amazingly, and you turn your lemonade, you know, your lemons into lemonade, and then you help as many women people as we can. And I think that's the beautiful thing that you've done, you know, above and beyond. So tell me a little bit about two, two different avenues. One, some lifestyle changes that you've made in your personal life um, to help combat the stress, the anxiety, you know, the overwork, because that still exists. You know, we're high paced women who do a lot. I'm, you know, I can assume you have a lot on your plate and you get it all done. Um, and then the other side of it is what are the things that you then do as a, as a chief well-being officer? Like how does yeah. that translate into real life? Yeah. So I would say that the, the number one reason for, for my success in my chief well-being officer role is that I have an amazing team. And so <laughs> while it seems like I do a lot and I do, I wouldn't be able to accomplish probably any of it with, without them. And so um, I want to make sure that, that that's clear because none of us get where we're going or where we are without a, village, a, no a lot what. of people helping yeah. us. Um, and so for me, you know, my, I guess, personal definition of well-being is eat, move, sleep, and find joy. And so, you know, prior to my burnout, prior to my cancer diagnosis, you know, my lifestyle was you know, I worked probably 19, 20 hours a day. I prided myself on the fact that I got to the gym, no matter what, I got to the gym for an hour a day. And mm -hmm. that left what, like three, four hours of sleep <laughs> or doing whatever else it was I was doing in my life. And I, you know, to your point earlier, I was like, I'm I, like, I thought I was great. I was like, I get to the gym an hour a day. Like who can actually say that? Like how many other people actually get to the gym an hour a day? Like I thought that I was like invincible because I got to the gym an hour a day. Well, what you learn is like, okay, well, you know what? Some days like going to the gym for an hour a day isn't actually the right answer. <laughs> and and what, what are you doing at the gym? You know, yeah. like, okay. You know, like what is yeah. it, what is it your gym workout? And is that actually helping you? you well, know? and I mean, I think back, like I go to the gym now and it's, I mean, you know, and, and look, just because I have a title of chief wellbeing officer doesn't mean that I don't screw it up all the time. Like I've been you know, in a really difficult point in my life right now, where my father passed away at the end of October, my mother has Alzheimer's. And so, you know, we've been kind of taking on some of her care because she was, he was her primary caregiver. And yeah. look, a lot, I realized that like a lot of those things that I put in place for myself and a lot of the things that I tell other people to do had slipped, right? Because I'm human and there's a lot going on in my life. And so, you know, I try, I try to eat nutritious foods every day. Um, you know, that doesn't mean that I don't indulge. I think that there's a time and a place for indulging, but making sure that I'm eating healthy and, you know, food that is nutritious for my body. Movement um, is incredibly important to me. I do still struggle with anxiety and um, I have found that, you know, I tell people that working out is much, much more about my mental health these days. And I mean, yes, I get the physical health benefits of it, but it's really 
truly kind of a time for me where I disconnect. But even, you know, my trainer said to me the other day, he was like, you got to put your phone away during workouts because you're so distracted, you know, because I was like so worried about my mom and everything that was going on that it was like, you know, it was the notifications on my watch and then picking up the phone and this and that. And he's like, we're, you know, we're not doing this because your workouts are, are suffering and, you know, and you're struggling through them and that's not who you are. And I was like, wow. <laughs> like that's a good call out like thank Thanks you for the you reminder <laughs> yeah yeah but even if it's not like on the days that I don't work out like just get like I'm standing up right now I stand up you know for yep. a few hours a day you know getting up and you know I, I have a dog so fortunately she has to be walked so she makes yep. me you know she makes me move around but some sort of movement um sleep um sleep is I used to be that person that said I would sleep when I'm dead that there'll be plenty of time and little did I know that I was going to you know die sooner than later mm -hmm. if I didn't get more sleep and so sleep is something I do not negotiate away under any circumstances my team and even my friends I mean you know I'm I am famous for you know, being at a, at a friend's gathering and just disappearing because it's me time too. for me to go to bed. <laughs> and I don't apologize. I mean, now that's kind of the point where they expect it. They're just like, oh, where's Jen? Oh, Jen's not here. <laughs> you know, my team, you know, we used to travel. We don't travel as much anymore, but like, you know, it gets 8, 30, 9 o'clock and they're like, Jen, it, you know, it, it's getting close to your bedtime. And, you know, I tease them and I'm like, you guys send me to bed because you know what it's like to work without, you know, to work with a gen that's not well rested. And it's, you know, I tease them about it, but it's absolutely true. I mean, yeah. I just, once you, once you, like, if you don't get enough sleep or good quality sleep and you are, you're able to make that transition to getting good quality and quantity sleep, like, you have, I just remember this reaction of like, wow, I didn't know that I could actually feel this good. <laughs> it's like the Wizard of Oz. It's like everything was yes. black and white and then it becomes technicolor. Like, oh. Because yeah, you, because I mean, again, back to some of the points you yeah. made, it's like, we're just taught to believe that like, this is the way that it is, that we sacrifice our sleep or we sacrifice our health or we sacrifice our personal time, right? And so then the other thing for me, and this is much more kind of since the beginning of the pandemic, but um, but it's happened at other times in my life. I get very um, impacted, emotionally impacted by the news. Mm. Um, and so at the beginning of the pandemic and just the negative news cycle and all the anxiety and just having anxiety already on my own, like it was really, really, really affecting me. And I was like, okay, like this has got to stop. And so every single day I do something that brings me joy. And I think when we think about like what brings us joy, we think about like, oh, vacations and like these big things, you know, like, oh, I have to plan like a two week vacation to somewhere fabulous in order to actually experience joy in my life. But it's not, that's not true. Like it could be playing with your kid or playing with your puppy or watching a funny YouTube video or watching something inspiring or writing a note of gratitude to somebody or writing your own list of gratitude. I mean, there's so many ways to kind of just ex experience joy and kind of cultivate that in your life. And so that's really important for me to do on on a daily basis just yeah. kind of remember that like yeah while the world feels like it's doesn't want to quit <laughs> there are still so many great things there's so many great people there's so many good things like there's so many heartwarming things that still happen all around us it's just not talked about on the news unfortunately yeah, yeah. taking back some of that power and that control yeah. to yeah. yourself and your own your own your own being your own health wellness and it's saying no I, I you have control over this yeah. You know, we, you can't control a lot of other things, but you can control that. Yeah. So, you know, and then in terms of my role at Deloitte, honestly, <laughs> um, it's, it's not all, I mean, it's different in that I'm trying to get, you know, 
a workforce of 100,000 plus people to, you know, to recognize and feel permissioned and take power over their own personal well-being, regardless of what their definition is, you know, understanding what lights them up, what allows them to be their best at home and at work, um, and really empowering them with the tools, the resources, the education to make those decisions for themselves. But it's also, I think that the key focus of my role um, is actually about culture. Um, because what we've learned, and I think it's becoming really, really obvious now to so many um, organizational leaders, is that you can put incredible programs in place that help people with their well-being. But if you don't actually take a good hard look at your culture and understand what the behavioral norms, whether they're spoken or unspoken, are that are keeping people from taking advantage of them or keeping people just in general from taking care of themselves, then the programs in large part aren't going to, they're going to be a little bit meaningless, right? Because if, if you roll out programs and nobody takes advantage of it, it doesn't mean that your well-being programs are wrong or that they failed. It means that there's another piece of the puzzle that you need to address. And so um, I spend a lot of time with our leadership and with our teams, you know, creating spaces and ways in which our teams can have these discussions to say, okay, what do we want our behavioral norms to be? Um, you know, when do we want, you know, I mean, it's things as simple as like, what do we want our standard working hours to be? When do we, you know, when do we expect kind of in general, everyone to be online so we can collaborate or kind of in the office or wherever it is we're going to be, if we're going to co-locate co that day, you know, what does that look like for us as a team, especially at an organization the size of Deloitte? Um, it's important to have organizational norms and behaviors, but what we've found and through a lot of research that we've done is that it's really the team and that's not shocking, right? It's the people that you spend the most time with during your yeah. work day and your work week that have the biggest impact on your well-being. And what we've also found is that it's lack of clarity, right? When people know what the expectation is to be online, they'll be online. But people, the reason people are burning out is because there is no clarity, right? And so they think that they have to be on all the time. If you just have the conversation about, hey, no, I don't actually expect you to be online. And oh, by the way, if there's an emergency, and I think it's important to, to, <laughs> to define what an emergency is because not everything is an emergency and not everything is a priority, but if there's an emergency, find a different way other than email to communicate with each other. Because if you need to communicate outside of standard working hours, you're basically telling people, yeah, we have standard working hours, but keep checking your email in case there's an emergency. So pick up the phone, use some sort of different channel, um, in the event that there's an emergency. So things like that, that are very clear to people around, hey, these are what the expectations are on our teams. And that's gonna look different across organizations and across teams, but what's important is that you're empowering the people and the leaders on those teams to make those decisions for themselves about how they work and then further kind of empowering conversations about what's important to each individual regarding like re related to their own personal well-being and their own personal well-being goals so we can create an environment where we collectively support one another that's amazing and then hopefully the programs you know compound that so there are programs that offer education but that also encourage interaction and right. you know within team within the team and within different teams right 
Absolutely, yes. So, I mean, we encourage teams to take advantage of our learning and development programs together, right? So you learn something together and then you discuss it and you and you put some of those things, the things that matter to you and your team, you put some of those things into practice. So absolutely. I think that, that I'm not saying that the programs are bad. I think the programs are foundational to success, but it's the programs and <laughs> the cultural components. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, we do. Um, with the seam, we do webinars for big companies and we did really at the beginning of the pandemic, a big law firm based in New York, but with, you know, offices all over the world had asked us to do a series of three um, on women's health and wellness. It was for a group of women who logged in from all over. So there were, there were two real objectives. One was the information, right? So this was like real beginning. This was mm-hmm. spring 2020. So we did a first one on how to zoom, you know, like how to deal working at home and literally like, okay, you might, a lot of you are mothers. Like, how did you do, you know, how are you going to handle this? How to put a red, you know, big stop sign on your door that don't come in. Recording. Yeah. I mean, all these really now seem like basic things, but was, you know, you all of a sudden are stuck at home and you're supposed to work all day. Um, And then the, but the second, and then it went on to other really interesting, you know, women's wellness topics. But the, but the other, I would say 50% of the reason why they want us to do this was you had women, you had women, we were working with women at home and completely not understanding how to interact outside of the work talk. Mm-hmm. And so it was an avenue to have discussions about topics that they were all really interested in um, with an expert giving them the info, but then have more you know, chatter kind of about that to raise sort of their their interest in each other and to raise, you know, get them outside of their work brain and be a little more social with each other because you lost the ability to chat in person. And I really do think, I think there's fabulous things about working from home and that are gonna completely change the landscape of work in this country forever, at least the next decade. But I also think there's some, you know, real downsides that need to be addressed that you're addressing, which is, you know, this isolation and loneliness and this idea that you are your home or your home a couple of days a week and technology means that you should be online all the time. Um, <laughs> and that's, you know, I mean, that's yeah. awful. I mean, but we, we've all experienced what that feels like. And so, um, you know, it feels like you never get to go to sleep. You never get to turn your brain off. You never and, get to do the other it, things. Yeah. The other thing that I'm hearing come through, um, which has been really important for us at Deloitte is, um, is the, the, the notion of permission, right. That mm-hmm. I, that, you know, doing by, by having, by creating these programs and these forums for, people to connect with one another on topics related to well-being, um, the organization is signaling that they give their permission. And we shouldn't, I mean, it like it pains me a little bit to be like, wow, we like people actually feel like they need permission to take care of themselves. But the truth is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so permission has been really important for us and continues honestly to be important. Like people want to know that like, you know, if I, if I draw these boundaries, if I do these things that the organization is saying that, you know, they want me to do because it's important to who I am and it's important to the, the, the longevity and the bottom line of the organization, that it's going to be seen as a positive and not a negative. And that comes about because in so many organizations, and it still exists today, you know, we've, we reward the person that stays up all night to finish. Oh, yeah. 
<laughs> right? Like we hold them out as like the employee of the month or the employee of the year. And we, you know, we give them raises and we give them promotions and all of those things. And so I think, you know, we're at a point now where like, organ- I mean, th- th- that's one of the things that you kind of have to step back and say, like, what's the behavior? I mean, when you reward a behavior, people are going to do it. <laughs> right. And so permission was big for us because it was kind of went against the grain of like, wait, hold on. You want me to like take time out in the middle of the day to go to yoga class? And we're like, yeah, like if that's your jam, then go for it. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and we're, we're supportive of you, but you know, I think we, we also need to look at, you know, what is it, what's the behavior that we're rewarding? I think a lot of organizations also, you know, that I hear in particular from women, really high-performing women, that the way that high-performing women get rewarded is by being given more work. <laughs> like you did a fantastic job, so we're going to pile this on, right? Instead of saying, wow, you did a fantastic job. Hey, maybe it's time for some recovery or, you know, maybe we're going to provi- give you some, you know, some people to help you to put around you so that you can, you know, you can advise and you can be more strategic and you can get more done, but it's not all resting on your shoulders. Yeah. That's so important. Gosh, yeah. <laughs> work cut out for you. <laughs> yeah, we have, look, as a society, as a globe, I think we, we have a long way to go. That's exciting though, to me, because I think, I think that, um, business leaders are much more willing to listen now than ever before, because we're all, you know, we're all standing on equal footing of kind of trying to figure out like, what does this future of work look like in a future of work that's much more human and humane than it's ever been. And so I think um, we have the attention that we need to really make some of these changes in a meaningful way. At least I remain very hopeful and optimistic about it. (laughs) You're amazing. Thank you so much for this time. You're just, you know, I think it's amazing what you're doing and you're clearly making an enormous difference. And it's, it's hard. I think a lot of times it takes us as individuals to go through the mud in order to really then come out, you come out the other side and then do something fabulous with it and change the lives of others, which you're clearly doing. I mean, you know, what more could you ask for? So I don't work at Deloitte, but I just thank you for talking to you and for all that you put out in the world. Thank you. Um, Thank you. you It's a great discussion. I appreciate being on today.